The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors, emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition Podcast. My name is Dan Pickering, and usually at this point in the podcast, it would be Josh Lowry, my co-host, doing the introduction, but Josh is been called away. And so it is a solo podcast in terms of hosts with just me. Josh, we miss you. Uh, This is going to be a great podcast, though, because we have uh, a very accomplished executive with Andreka Bernatova. She's the CEO of SGEN Acquisition Corp., which I was afraid I was going to get that wrong, but I think I I think I pulled it off. Um, And Andreka, remind us this is a public company, a SPAC, that you're you're doing a combination. What's the what's the stock symbol? Uh, ESAC. ESAC. And so, um, where would we if we went? Folks sometimes like to follow along mm-hmm. as you're talking about things and check out websites and whatnot. And so, what's the website where they can follow what's going on with SGEN? So www.esgen-spac.com. E-S-G-E-N- SPAC.com. Correct. Perfect. Yes. Great. Well, so full disclosure for, for our audience, uh, Andreka is is one of the advisors to PEP on our uh, Energy Transition Advisory Board. And so we get to spend a lot of time together talking about what's happening in the energy transition. And now we're doing it just a little bit more formally, but not too formally. So welcome. Thank you, Dan. Now, I know... I know your story, but the world doesn't. So give us a, a little bit of history about you, kind of part resume, part personal. So take it away, Andreka. So maybe let me kick it off with the personal. Obviously, I, I, I do have an accent. I don't come from Louisiana or Texas <laughs> or Colorado. Um, and so I'm originally from the Czech Republic, you know, came here when I was 15. So um, you know, quite uh, quite a few decades ago now. I actually did my citizenship exam this morning, so I'm becoming a citizen. Hopefully, at some point. Fabulous. In the next so you passed. Weeks. I passed. Yes, yes. I was I was worried about it. I did study though. I, uh-huh. I did not underestimate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love I got it. The A plus. So that's good. Um, so um, you know, came here when I was 15. Um, I spent actually a year with a wonderful family in New Hampshire that changed my life. The Weisbergers. Uh, I, I do want to give them a shout out. I still stay in touch with them, and they really sort of showed me the you know uh, the American dream. Honestly, mm-hmm. to- totally converted me. You know, I was growing up in a communist uh, country and went through a transition from communism to capitalism, and then you know I arrived in New Hampshire and they sort of completely opened my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I also uh, went to school in uh, Switzerland for two years. I was a scholarship student there. Um, 
and that was a unbelievably life-changing experience uh, you know At high uh, school uh, high school mm-hmm. so last two years of high school okay um and a very international school um and then i um actually wanted to go to school in the uk and ended up uh, going to harvard in the end and um you know one of the best had to things, settle for had to settle for well harvard. actually i i was aiming for oxford because somebody i knew went to oxford so i was accepted to oxford and i uh, had to turn it down because i didn't have uh, the finances to go to oxford and so uh, sort of Harvard was a little bit of you know a backup in some ways because I got a full ride and I was that's a humble story. brag <laughs> that is a humble brag Harvard is a backup school I love it but the, the funny thing is with that story actually Dan you know I I now think back I mean I, I had no sort of sense of you know is it a, I mean I knew it was a good school for example but I didn't know how you know it's a great school um, and so I remember receiving the acceptance letter mm-hmm. you know I was providing you uh, full financial aid etc cetera, etc cetera. And I was reading it to my mom in the Czech Republic, and my mom's reaction was, "Well, um, I guess we now have to buy you a suitcase." You know, so <laughs> so that's kind of how how we behave. Right. Uh, we we don't overreact necessarily to things, and um, and you know, Harvard was a great experience for me, and and I think one of actually the best things that happened to me there is that I studied abroad. Mm-hmm. So I uh, went to Chile <clears throat> for eight months, uh, studied at Pontifica Universidad Católica. And then uh, for about six months, I went to study in Cairo, Egypt. So two different continents, two different languages, and two completely different cultures. And, you know, um, and that just completely, you know, changed my view of the world, obviously, because living somewhere is very different than Mm -hmm. visiting the place. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to that, speaking the language is, you know, opens up a whole different uh, world to you. And so very valuable experience. So kind of when I look back, you know, in my life, I, I've lived, I think, on five continents and, uh, you know, uh, seven, I think, seven different countries. And, and that honestly is just um, incredibly, I think, uh, sort of that, that sort of brings me um, a lot of ammunition for success, even what mm-hmm. I'm you know, doing today, being able to operate in many different environments. So anyways, long, long story short, um, Really now digging into my professional background, I have a combination of uh, investment banking, investing, and an operational mm-hmm. uh, toolkit. So investment banking, I was at Credit Suisse, no longer Credit Suisse, but right. uh, extremely valuable experience. Uh, you know, the, the traditional two years of, yes. of analyst investment banking that I never, I, I basically don't even remember those years. Right, 100 hours a week and, and uh, a lot of spreadsheets. It was uh, it was extremely challenging. The hardest two years of my life, mm. uh, by far. And uh, I was also a banker at Morgan Stanley, so Credit Suisse in New York doing M and A, and then Morgan Stanley here in Houston doing natural resources. And then as an investor, I was sitting actually with Blackstone covering emerging markets. Okay. So uh, you know South uh, America, Middle East, Africa, Europe. Um, it's essentially everything outside of Asia and uh, across industries, across geographies, um, and across products, actually. So three different, you know, uh, kind of variables, which was an extremely unique way to sort of train your So you brain. could have done debt in Nigeria uh-huh. or equity, private equity in, you said ex-Asia, so, or private equity in Brazil. Yes, that's right. Correct. Wow. Okay. Very, very wide. That's a broad uh, mandate. Yes. Um, and then since I left emerging markets so much, I decided I'm going to, instead of business school, move to emerging market. 
Um, and I moved to Abu Dhabi, so packed up my bags and went from the Manhattan Island to the Sahara Desert, essentially. Wow. Um, and uh, was uh, sort of part of the team that helped to build out Mubadala development mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, in Mubadala, that was my first time that I was exposed to you know solar and wind uh, projects around the world, which is where I spend most of my time um, in Abu Dhabi uh, doing. And um, then, really, over the past decade plus now, Dan, I've been uh, as you know mostly as an operator. Yeah. So I've uh, mostly as a CFO um, at a variety of companies. So, so um, you're so I'm I'm jumping in because you're you're Madab Mubadala in uh-huh. Abu Dhabi, and then you wind up back in kind of the midstream business in that's Texas. That's right. That's right. How, so how's that happen? I very deliberately wanted to focus on energy. So I kind of looked at my background, and I was you know, sort of, I guess, uh, early 30s, call okay. it. Yep. And I thought I had a, you know, a pretty diverse finance toolkit, but I did not want to be a finance person. Okay. I wanted to be an industry person. And so I took a step back, and I thought, well, what is the industry that, one, I like, uh-huh. um, that I think is going to be, you know, interesting from a uh-huh. professional perspective uh, going forward, and then... Uh, what is the industry that I I think I touched the most as well? And, and in fact, sort of all these three parameters led to you know energy and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so, if uh, you wanted to do energy and infrastructure, this was you know 2014 uh, or 2011 actually. Sorry, 2011. Um, you had to be either in London or Houston, and uh, I I wanted to be in you know Houston, Texas. So that's what led me to come to Houston. It actually was a very deliberate decision to focus on energy and be an industry and not a product expert. Yeah. <clears throat> and so what's that mean? You packed the suitcase that your mom got you uh, when you went to high school and- <laughs> Actually, yes, <laughs> almost. <laughs> um, so you moved back and job search or did you, did, did you find the opportunity before you made the move? No, so I, um, well, I actually did find the opportunity before I made the move, but I was sort of going back and forth. I knew I did not want to stay in Abu Dhabi long term. Mm-hmm. I always knew I wanted to go back to, come back to America. Um, and so, and, and I realized, you know, if I stayed sort of, you know, two, three plus years, it's then very hard to sort of come back into, you know, into the U.S. market. So actually, I wanted to go and be an investor, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that was essentially you know, close to impossible, right? Going back and forth and interviewing, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I that's how I took the Morgan Stanley job. Um, so I came in as an investment banker and that was actually a fabulous experience mm-hmm. because so it you came back me. to banking. I did. Yes. Yeah. I never thought I would do banking again mm-hmm. after Credit Suisse. And I did come back to banking. It was, you know, very different the second time around. You're a VP. It's, you know, it's a, it's a different uh, sort of environment, I think, or in Houston mm-hmm. or in New York. Um, so I don't want to say I enjoyed it, but it was, yep. you know, a, a very different uh, experience. And um, and I actually, I'm glad I went that route because it gave me a very broad view of energy and shale at that mm-hmm. time. You know, from upstream to midstream, I did a little bit of services, a refining thing. And so uh, that was very helpful. So then I could pick what area of energy do I actually want to, uh, focus on uh-huh. if I want to be an operator. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, as an operator, I thought I wanted to be in an environment where 
I, even though, you know, as a non-engineer, as a non-geologist, can actually add a true value to the company. And so everything sort of pointed in, you know, to the midstream sector at that time. And I'm going to stop you for a second because a minute ago you said mm-hmm. you wanted to be an investor, mm-hmm. but I think you meant you wanted to be an operator. Or I wanted to be an operator. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. All right. So, so you take a stop in investment well, actually, let, let me correct you, Dan. So I wanted okay. to go. I wanted to be an investor. Yeah. Couldn't find a, a you know a uh, investment okay. opportunity. So, so that, ended up in banking. banking. Got it. And then that's actually a very good side uh, sideways sort of here. So uh, through banking. Yep. I realized, you know, this operative world of starting companies, yep. you know, taking them public, selling them is, is actually really interesting mm-hmm. from multiple different perspectives. Um, let me try that. Yep. Um, and so that's why I kind of started to think about, well, I really want to, you know, see if I can look for an optimal operator, uh, you, you know, uh, sort of opportunity with the, you know, sort of the right team and the right setup where I can see a, a true growth and a, and a very diverse company from sort of the ability to add it, you know, a, a like a value add from a financial perspective, not okay. sort of collect and write checks, uh-huh. right? A, a very uh, sort of intensive, capital intensive business where I can actually really add value. So that's what then pointed me to be an operator because I looked around and I thought this, this is actually really interesting. You know, it's not like you're not being part of a big company or uh-huh. building something from scratch or, or you're joining something that's, uh, you know, that's really starting to grow and then selling it or, or taking it public. So uh-huh. it was an incredibly exciting, you know, time. In, right. In 20, there's a lot 11, happening. 12, yeah, there's a yes. lot happening in the U.S. energy business at the time. And I sure. was very, you know, w- one of the things that um, that I was very cautious about uh, was you know, I had, and I always say this to young people, I had opportunities to join as a CFO, this and that company, et cetera. At that time, I was coming out of Morgan Stanley and banking is sort of a, you know, have a nice basis for that. <clears throat> and it literally took me three years of making sure that I joined the right operating company. Like all the ingredients had to make sense. Uh-huh. If one of the variables didn't make sense, I just did not, take those positions so as sort of painful as it was you know mm-hmm. to sort of stick it out in banking um i, I really waited for the first uh, operating role it was you know incredibly important for me not to sort of get into a situation where i basically set a ceiling yep um uh, you know and on the other hand i wanted to get in a situation where which really opens up a lot more doors and a totally different perspective and has very high potential for success mm-hmm. and so, so that was where so there was Pentex Midstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were backed by NGP. Um, so private equity. Private equity back. Yep. Uh, this was 2014. We mm-hmm. started the company. We essentially um, uh, got a commercial contract in place. We built the assets. Which were where? What, what in, geographies? In uh, Terreville, Louisiana. Okay. In Louisiana. Um, we then took the company public, and then we sold. We ran the public business for about a year and a half. And then we sold it to energy transfer uh-huh. and essentially everything within I think two, yeah, two and a half years uh-huh. plus minus a few months. So I, I, I think back now and I think this is never going to happen to me again. It's just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's almost the perfect scenario. If you are going into an operating yep. situation, you, you cannot visualize a, a, yep. a better scenario, right? You went through you saw all facets facet, of it, everything, the yep. beginning to the end and, the, you know, an IPO in the middle. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
And, and a great, you know, it was a, it was a fabulous team, and GPU is a fabulous sponsor. So it was overall just, you know, I, I uh, that's actually where um, where I built a lot of the the public investor and private investor relationships uh, that I have to this date. Mm-hmm. Actually, some of them are investors even in, in my own SPAC now. Yeah, and so um, it was just a you know a, a eye opening and like extremely toolkit enriching. Uh, experience and I think it was you know part of the reason was I was very uh, open or deliberate um, about I'm going to stop you because you used the word deliberate and (laughs) I think by the end of the podcast folks are going to understand that if there's one word to describe you deliberate (laughs) is deliberate is a good one Um, anyway so you were very deliberate I was very deliberate in sort of sharing with the, you know, broader sort of Pentex executives what uh, what my ultimate goal in life was. You know, I was uh, 33, I think, when, when I joined uh, Pentex. You know, I had my first child, about to have my second child, actually. And um, you're sort of at the point where, you know, I wanted to make sure that, that people are aware where I'm heading, right, uh-huh. with my career. And so I remember this conversation, this was actually with the, it was probably week two on the job, Dan, right? I'm sitting down with the CEO of the company and he asked me, he says, you know, AB, so, you know, what do you want to do in life? And um, and I said, well, I, I want to be in your seat, right? And so I think most people in my role would be like, you oh, know, I want the finance role, the strategy role. So I, said, <laughs> I said, I want to be in your I seat. I want to be the boss. I was very lucky that he mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, a, a sort of, he was willing to accept that response. But that actually, Dan, was, was a very important uh, step because the the team then understood right like the toolkit I want to build is not a finance toolkit I have the finance toolkit I want to build the commercial toolkit I want to build the operating toolkit I want to you know learn more about upstream how it relates to midstream I want to learn about you know investors and and all these you know different types of investors in the space so um, it was just you know the first time that I truly said this is what I want to do and made others aware of what I yep. wanted to do. Said so it out they loud. Gave, they yep. then enabled me, right? Or, or they, with my, you know, they, they understood yep. why I wanted to sort of be exposed to different parts of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, a, again, a, a fabulous experience. I mean, I, to this date, I think it's probably one of the best, if not the best operating experience I've had at a company. That's great. And so Pintex gets sold to Energy Transfer. Uh-huh. And you're out of a job at that point. Yep. And you stuck with the midstream, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so let's fast forward a little bit just because rinse and repeat, lots of success in the midstream business. And you, but you want to be in the seat, right? You want to be in the CEO seat. And so <laughs> take us, take us to kind of how how that progresses to your SPAC. And mm-hmm. so take us from the midstream mm-hmm. business to a SPAC. So, you know, um, after Pentex, I had a couple of CFO roles. Yep. Um, one was at a, a water midstream company, Goodnight Midstream. So uh, it, it was still midstream, but it was a little bit, you know, sort of adding again to the sort of the industry toolkit, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I joined that company when it was, at, you know, growing uh, very, very fast. Um, 
and you know through that lens this was this was sort of 2018 19 i guess and and uh, it was interesting because i learned a lot about you know upstream and economics and and all these you know sort of strategic things we were doing were very um, eye opening and so at that time i kind of took a step back and i thought well you know do i want to stay in midstream or oil and gas frankly in, uh-huh. in general or should i sort of look at the the universe more broadly and so so i actually took 6 months um and i again deliberately uh-huh. um st- just went around the world and you know uh it wasn't zoom at that time yet but uh you know sort of got on the phone with all different kinds of investors uh that i knew and you know from small public guys big public guys and hedge funds uh you know long only private equity credit you know across also a small big right so uh-huh. lp gp so all sorts of different investors and i basically asked them what what do you think about energy right looking into the next 30 years because yeah. that's what concerns me i mean i'm i'm going to be 42 you know in a few days my happy birthday you know, a few days early thank you yes i'm i always program myself with my age like 6 months ahead of time so i get used <laughs> to my new age um but you know what was important for me my time horizon in terms of my career was 30 years uh-huh. not 10 and so i was making a decision about energy and infrastructure based on the 30 year horizon yep um and at that time then i just you know i just couldn't find a single investor i mean this was a pretty tough time you know in all and gas so this is uh, 20 this was 2018 19 yeah. okay i couldn't find anybody who was sort of like I I'm a believer yeah. right like I I think in the next 30 uh, 10 years is very different but 30 years is very different too uh-huh. right so um so sort of based on that feedback <clears throat> and by the way that's one of the things that I've learned and I actually do proactively every couple of years I've learned this at, at Blackstone because at Blackstone I was sitting at this uh in this macro seat right you're talking to you know you're basically competing for capital you know if you are in energy with a real estate play in China or a you know a pipeline in Africa and so mm-hmm. you really have to have the ability to kind of take a step back get out of your lane and kind of you know and and open yourself up what is let me proactively engage mm-hmm. with players in totally different industries so that i can really take a step back and think about where the world is going right i think that's one of the fundamentally most challenging things to do in life you have mm-hmm. to like proactively do that so i do that every you know maybe 2 years <clears throat> okay and so based on that feedback i thought well you know what let me um this is interesting let me look at energy more broadly outside yep. of oil and gas mhm um so i actually took a role at that time with a company called enchanted rock uh, based here in houston uh that's a um a, a microgrid resiliency microgrid company uh, i was a cfo there <clears throat> again joined the company to you know hyper growth uh coming from small customers to very large sophisticated customers um in Texas and and uh, around um around the US and you know on the side sort of i had a i would call it like side hustles you know mm-hmm. uh that i would just be working for free with companies helping them uh you know with a fundraise or helping them with a you know sort of how to how to structure a commercial contract helping them you know uh, with operations and you know even things like obviously back office and finance yeah. and accounting etc but, but wait working for free free working for free or literally not free. not even sweat equity this is not nothing nothing this was absolutely for free and i by the way i had my third child this was middle of covid then 
I had my third uh, uh, child. This was August 2020. And literally, I mean, some of the guys I'm sure who are going to listen to this remember this. I literally, like a week after I had uh, my uh, daughter, I was like out there, you know, helping a bunch of companies across the board. Uh, you know, with again, with fundraising, they were cons- a lot of them were considering SPACs. So, you mm-hmm. know, either helping them understand the consequences. Are they mature enough? If they're not, you know, you're better off sort of staying private. Are you, you know, if, if you are ready to go public, here's the things that you need to do. And so uh, that actually was probably eight to nine months, <clears throat> you know, time period where uh, where I was sort of doing that for free. And obviously I had my full job, right. had a newborn in the middle of COVID and, you know, um, was having these, you know, had, had these side hustles. So when somebody says, oh, well, you know, what did you do during COVID? I'm like, I've done plenty. Right. That did not stop me. It was actually like much, right? you know, much more busy for me than, than generally. So anyways, in a nutshell, uh, that opened the world sort of broadly uh, to what I would call decarbonization or energy transition. I call it actually energy evolution where we okay. are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and um, I that sort of led me to a SPAC. So I thought that this and I continue to actually think that that the SPAC vehicle is a very efficient product in specific circumstances for a company mm-hmm. to take a company uh, public. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a good product to take ideas public, but it's a good product. To take what ideas? ideas okay, yeah. Public, but to take companies public, mm-hmm. we don't have to name names. We all know, you know, mm-hmm. some of the players that that um, unfortunately sort of went in that sort of ideas, you know, going public territory. Um, so, and I, and I thought that the SPAC product would be a nice way for, uh, some GPs that were in, you know, oil and gas or, or midstream or traditional, you know, energy industries to actually look at energy, you know, uh, transition more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, when you say GPs, you mean the, the private equity companies correct. themselves. Yeah. Correct. <clears throat> Um, so I sort of uh, thought about a couple of investors that I was close to that I, you know, really respected and, and folks that I would want to be associated with and sort of fill that criteria of also this could be a nice, you know, step, a step out uh, for them into uh, energy evolution and uh, ended up actually partnering with Energy Spectrum. Okay. We initially. So you pitched them. You said yes. we should mm-hmm. do this. Yes. They, at the same time, I think were going through through mm-hmm. their own, you know, uh, yep. sort of evolution of what, whether right. they want to go into it and spec, etc. So, but but yes, I, I was, okay. uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, I would say, engaging with them yeah. in a discussion about spacs and energy transition, etc. Mm-hmm. And and before you go down that path, though, so let me come back to you have this pullback analysis in 2018 2019 proactively thinking about the world talking to your peers and mm-hmm. mentors etc mm-hmm. um and nobody was excited about conventional energy on a 30-year period mm-hmm. and so you say let me think more broadly so what i don't hear in there is i don't necessarily hear um energy transition we need to de- decarbonize to save the world mm. I hear. Ah, okay. You t- tell me. I mean, mm-hmm. is it is this a passion or is it practical? So, <clears throat> I mean, this is maybe uh, going too much uh, sort of philosophical or whatever. But um, you know, I, I obviously I was in 
you know, green energy in 2010 timeframe, okay. right? With uh, Mubadala and mm-hmm. uh, the solar and wind projects around the world. So this was not my first sort of rodeo in right. that space. Um, I, you know, what I thought was very different. So in addition to talking to investors, then I basically took a, it sounds like Richard Branson or something, but I took a, t- you know, a couple of weeks and I just decided I, I don't, I'm not going to read anything about energy or infrastructure. I'm just going to read random things. What, what are young people doing? What interests young people, you know, like reading about totally different industries, you know, let's like w- w- where are hotels evolving, you know, they're mm-hmm. doing these like, uh, you know, parts, you know, like how are people living? How, how do young people like to move around, right? What kind of clothes do they like to buy? And, you know, sort of reading just random things like this. Okay. Um, and after my, you know, two weeks of emerging from this uh, kind of intense reading uh, exercise, you know, I, I, I realized this this is very interesting, this whatever energy evolution um, uh, situation, right? I, I thought, well, What's different uh, this time than a decade prior and to when that? you were at Mabadala, yeah. And there were just a number of factors. One is government, right? You mm-hmm. have, obviously, that's, uh, you know, being pushed from all sorts of different perspectives. It's not just Europe. It is globally, mm-hmm. <clears throat> truly globally, from, yep. you know, U.S. to China. Um, the second piece was, you know, looking at big corporates. Yep. And actually not only making commitments, which is, you know, a, 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 an important thing to do, you need to set goals in life, but also, you know, starting to sort of put uh, money to where their mouth is. So that's number two. <clears throat> and number three, and that actually to me was most uh, impactful, was the end consumer behavior, right? So, so every generation is different. And through sort of my interaction, you know, via the reading and also I deliberately like wanted to interact with young people, people who are, you know, between the age of 10 and 20. Right. Those, mm-hmm. those are the people that I, I kind of and need to build and, my career on. Right? And at this point in time, you didn't have a 10, a 10 year no, old. No, right. I Your did kids not. are yes. younger than that. Yes. So this yes. is OK. Like I can. Yes. Uh, but th- they are influencing me now very mm-hmm. much. Actually, they are at that age where they truly are giving me a real life feedback. But. At that time, I just looked at young people and I thought, what are the trends, right? What is important to them? And I, I just, you know, I just sort of realized this is this is very interesting because we may go from a world where, you know, the, the Instagram and your looks and the cool things to do, which is kind of like my generation, maybe, you know, a little generation below me is obviously incredibly important. Um, not to me. I, I don't do selfies past, past that. No, you know, <laughs> 10, 10 years or 15 years past that. But um you know that was sort of the social media was a was the big wave right what is the next big big wave i felt that's going to be you know clean planet i I just really felt that that that's something that the young generation is deeply going to care about by Uh the clothes they are wearing they don't care about having a xyz you know uh brand they they care about uh, you know the the clothes being recyclable right um and the food right, they eat, right? They, they they really are passionate about making sure that it's grown the right way and it's, you know, disposed the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, their, their modes of uh, transportation, right, are, are very different. You know, I mean, we're in Texas here, so I, I still think the boys want to have, you know, the big truck. Cars, but, yeah. but, you know, it's electric now, right? So if you ask, actually, my 80-year-old son, he cannot even... It doesn't even occur to him that he should have a, you know, a, a, a non-electric truck. 
It's like, oh, that's what I will have when I'm, you know, 16. And so it's it's sort of that truly was to me, Dan, what kind of made me convinced that this is truly a long lasting mm-hmm. life. It's, mm-hmm. There's, you know, the, the, the second piece I would say that was, you know, the analysis that I did was, you know, as the world evolves, and I think I, I often mention this at our uh, board meetings <laughs> a couple of times, I think I mentioned that, but, you know, I, I describe a sort of decarbonization uh, in a way where it's in some ways similar to what, what we went through in, in other instances, right? So number one is smoking, cigarettes. <clears throat> in the 80s, I go to my pediatrician in communist Czechoslovakia, she would smoke a cigarette. And so, you know, everybody was smoking, right, around us. And when you now look around, there are very few people who smoke now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a pretty quick change if you think about it. I mean, literally probably, you, you know, within 20 years, um, that that is a completely different uh, setup. So number two is um, trash, right? It hit me sort of when I were visiting, um, uh, I don't want to name a country, but it was a country where there was a lot of trash on, on the on the street. You're being uh, nice. Uh, to yes, the I don't want. I don't want to. The trashy wanna, country. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> and uh, in my, uh, you know, uh, at that time, eight year old son, I think, or maybe seven year old son, he said, you know, I asked him, well, how did you like the place? Because it's a beautiful country. Mm-hmm. The, the nature is beautiful, but as we were passing, you know, from this ship to the resort, you know, he saw kind of an hour of what this country looked like, and. Uh, and he said, oh, I, 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 it was terrible. I couldn't stand it. The place is horrible. And I said, why? And he said, you know, there's trash everywhere. And so, again, if you think about it, you know, maybe outside of New York, where it's very normal to have trash in the streets, but, you know, you, you won't walk in the street and throw trash randomly on the street. That is just not socially acceptable, uh-huh. right? And so the same thing, the same way, Dan, this is how I view decarbonization. I just fundamentally fundamentally don't think that in 10 or 20 years it's going to be sort of socially acceptable mm-hmm. to have, you know, a, a mega house and, and a mega car and be, you know, just a wasteful person. I think it's going to yeah. be a cool thing to be conscious about, uh, you know, let, 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 let me be respectful, right, mm-hmm. towards sort of nature as I am in respectful not throwing trash on the streets or as I'm respectful not smoking cigarette in a restaurant. Um, so those were sort of the, it's a long, very long-winded way of saying those were really the, the you know, uh, signs essentially that, that pointed me in the direction. I, I just have a very high conviction about energy moving into sort of this mm-hmm. new arena, if mm-hmm. you will, <clears throat> for, for long-term and um and you know, like, uh, truly going there, not right. you know, with a false start, as we've had many, many times, obviously yep. in green energy. So you <clears throat> you raised a SPAC with Energy Spectrum. Mm-hmm. How much how much capital did you raise? How big a SPAC was it? So it was two eighty two. Um, so we uh, upsized the green shoe, upsized the SPAC as much as we could. We actually reopened the IPO SPAC market. Yep. This was in October twenty twenty one. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's Energy Spectrum have been a fabulous partner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, I was very deliberate about you know partnering with uh, with uh, a group of investors that I felt uh, have a very strong you know track record and and also good and thoughtful people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, we've partnered. This was actually in I think March or April of 2021. Mm-hmm. And of course, 
you know, the SPAC market melts down, yep. right? So I was like, yep. okay, that's great. Well, not like but, but I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I missed, I, I didn't hear. You said, how, how big was the SPAC? 282. Sorry. 282, okay, like, yeah. so yes. two, 282 million bucks. So you got 300 yes. million bucks. Yep, yep. And the world's melting a little bit. So that was prior to that. So we okay. signed up our, um, you know, arrangement yep. um, to partner together. Um, we actually partnered at the LP level, you know, so that we are aligned with the fund, which was, again, a, a very important component. We wanted mm -hmm. to make sure we do it the right way for, you know, obviously energy spectrum LPs. And uh, we, uh, you know, we were waiting to go public. So City and Barclays were our underwriters. They were by far, obviously, at that time, you know, leading the IPO the most market. active, yeah. And I was sitting there for for six months, essentially listening to you know our weekly uh, update calls. The spec market is closed forever, right. and you know forget about and you, it. And you don't can't look at deals because you can't. You can't look at deals. You can't no. pre-wire no. anything no. in the spec. You market, literally so. cannot do anything there. Yeah. So we were literally sitting there. I mean, it was it was sort of nice because I spent two months in, you know, in my Czech village with my kids and. Uh, um, but it's obviously very nerve-wracking because sure. you know we were ready to go and um, and so about uh, well I'll call it four months into it <clears throat> I I, um, I said to City and Barclays say you know put us in front of four investors and and see if our story um, you know is is something that's Would appealing resonate. to the market yep. mm -hmm. and so uh, they did I mean at that time. You know, there were probably, I mean, there were hundreds of SPACs that yep. were testing the market. Yep. You know, people who were, you know, seasoned investors, people who were, um, you know, sort of very, very, you know, established former CEOs of public companies, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, and here I was, I kind of said, you know, put us in front of four investors and see if, if this uh, hunts. So they did. Um, and I think our story resonated. I think it was, you know, differentiated. <clears throat> we... We came to the market with a very different uh, sort of background, I mm -hmm. think, from most folks. Uh, you know, very deep operating background, which I thought was extremely important. You, yeah. you need to, you know, for for a SPAC to be successful, you actually need to one. I mean, obviously, capital is important, but two is you need to add more to the table than just a vehicle to go public. Yep. Um, and I say now, obviously, you know, we're, we're working very closely with Sunergy and making sure that they have all the ingredients um, to sort of be a successful public company after the close, right? So Sunergy is the company that you mm -hmm. ultimately settled on in yes. an agreement to acquire. Yes. S-U-N-E-R-G-Y? Yes, correct. Okay. Um, I, I say that so people can go look that up too. Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. Um, and so... But Sunergy couldn't have been your first... Oh, it was it was yes. not your first deal hundreds, you looked at hundreds I mean hundreds of companies so we went public City and Barclays put us in, in front of everybody we, we opened the SPAC market uh, we went public this was October 2021 and now I sort of you know took a step back and I was like oh my gosh now we have to actually you know do now you gotta, work. Now now you gotta find, a, find a deal yes um, and so we literally between probably you know, October to February. I mean, we, look, we looked at 200 companies just in that time frame. Probably, mm -hmm. um, we were very broad in terms of in terms of the space, um, and I think that's one of the really important pieces. You know, whether you are an investor or whether you are a, 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 a SPAC, is uh, given where sort of energy evolution is right now. 
it's a very you know it changes obviously you know very quickly and very dramatically so so ira right for example i mean before ira hydrogen and carbon capture were inflation, very irrelevant inflation re reduction act yes, ira yes yes um and you know after that the, the landscape you know to a certain extent changed yeah and so we were very broad from the beginning dan we were looking at you know uh, grid uh, renewable fuels uh, efficiencies uh, recycling you know carbon capture utilization you know some hydrogen stories etc so it was it was it was a very very broad um sort of exercise mm -hmm. uh, but through that we got to know just incredible amount of companies yep. we now have you know two plus years watching those companies mm -hmm. um and um, how, how many of the <laughs> if you saw 200 yeah 18 months ago yeah how many of the 200 are still around well surprisingly still quite Most, a bit okay still still quite a bit i mean there are some that are not around but you know it's uh to a certain extent, um, a lot of these companies have been around, for, you know, some yeah. of them decades. Right. And so they are sort of used to uh, being capital starved. Yep. Right. And so they. Uh, and, and I guess if you if you got 300 million to put to work, you're not looking at teeny tiny companies. Yes. You know, there has to be some yes. scale to be worth. Yes. You know, investing in. So, so that that makes sense. So most of them are still around. Most of most of them are still around. I think. Uh, well, how'd you hone I, I, in on Synergy? So we had a very uh, specific criteria. So when we when we were actually taking the uh, SPAC public, you know, investors asked me, are you going to look for revenue generating companies and EBITDA generating companies? And and I said, you know, um, we ideally for revenue generating, so it's revenue today. Yep. Or a you know predictable path to revenue. You know, revenue may look very different, right, for different players. I mean, some companies had revenues in you know twenty twenty two. Uh, and then they'll never have revenues again, right? So that doesn't work either. It's it, it, we are looking for companies that can provide sustainable, current or contracted revenues. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, we did say that you know obviously our preference would be for EBITDA generating businesses, but obviously that's incredibly hard to find in decarbonization. Because so uh -huh. you know, it's still early. It's still early. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's like shale in whatever 2010, right? I mean, we we have to. Kind of sort of put things in context. I mean, right. growing businesses just you know it, it's it just takes time. Consume cash. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and so we uh, you know w with Synergy, so we looked at an incredible amount of uh, companies, and really Synergy ticked a lot of our boxes and and, and boxes for Energy Spectrum, who's contributing mm -hmm. uh, ten million dollars of, of pipe into this uh, transaction, by the way, and that was very important to have that alignment with Energy Spectrum as well. Um, and so number of things that sort of led us to to that deal was number one historically you know the revenue generating business yep. historically EBITDA generating business so not in 2027 um it is a uh, very scalable business um so what synergy does is residential solar okay they do sales and installation active in florida texas and arkansas right now uh, but very, you know, tactically expanding into different uh, geographical areas. <clears throat> but they've managed to, you know, actually produce EBITDA, which is which is frankly unique in that space. There are very mm -hmm. few players in, in the solar space. I mean, you have obviously the giants, uh, the, the Sunruns and uh, Sonovas and SunPowers. Um, but, you know, some of them actually don't uh, uh, generate uh, any cash flow or EBITDA. And, um, you know, a lot of them have sort of a, 
uh, more complex businesses. This is a very simple business. I call it the Coca-Cola of decarbonization because it's just selling widgets in an enormous market. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at Europe, Dan, right, you see a penetration there, call it 10 to 40%, depending on the country. In the U.S. is 3% right now. Um, obviously different, you know, between <clears throat> California and Florida, et cetera. But, um, you know, even in a place like Florida, it's, it's right around, you know, 5% penetration. So it's still very, very low. And so it's essentially just selling and installing a widget. There's nothing groundbreaking from a technology perspective, right? Obviously, okay. that's going to evolve because as you get more efficient solar panels, that's, that's going to help. Um, you know, you have sort of different financing structures that could be optimal, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's a plain vanilla business that actually helps to scale uh, energy transition uh-huh. today, which I feel very passionately about. That is what is incredibly important, right? I mean, there are a ton of super interesting companies that have very, very interesting sort of technologies that, that I'm sure are going to change the world. Like we, you know, in, in, in one of these VC portfolios is going to be a company that's the next Amazon, that's the next, you know, Apple, um, et cetera. But, but, uh, but what's really important is to solve this sort of step between now and whenever that incredible transformation is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, and so action you know, today. Yes. <laughs> Action, today. Action today. Effective it, today. It, what it is, is if, if we think back when we, you know, got our, our first iPhone, right? If we got the iPhone at a time when we were staring at black and white TV, we wouldn't know what to do with it. Right? The environment was created to actually for us to be able to adapt that iPhone and use it. And so that's how I feel about sort of energy evolution today. It's about not necessarily just new technologies. It's also about scaling what we have so we can create an adequate ecosystem for, you know, one of the companies to be a totally, you know, total game changer, mm-hmm. um, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's, you know, 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. But it's almost as important, the scaling exercise today yep. as, you know, an incredible change in 20 yeah, years. Yeah, a step function thing. So... I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So Synergy with the SPAC has not closed yet, correct? No. Okay. And so that's coming when you because fu- it takes a while once you announce it that's right. the, the transaction you got to get approved and So we filed our initial S4 a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. um, and um, we're looking to close in the first quarter of next year. Okay. And Right, the rising rates has made that business harder mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. more costly for the mm-hmm. consumer. Um, do these guys have a magic bullet to mm-hmm. get around that, or it just you just have to find the customer that can that can mm-hmm. afford to put solar in on the now? It's a very efficient uh, sales and installation process, so it's, okay. it's very important that you sort of have those two under one umbrella, but you're also um, you know, extremely organized and, and fairly sophisticated about, you know, selling to, to installation. They're very efficient the way they do sales. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a kind of a structure of, of salespeople who are, you know, initial kind of door knockers and then, you know, to closers essentially. Uh, but they, you know, in some ways, maybe that's why we, um, we like the business so much because it's it has so much to do with my own you know background sort of not being turned away and mm-hmm. you know you hear a lot of no's and you Just kind of um, be very persistent um, and um, it, you know they, they are very tactical about the geographical areas where they are 
so you don't have this huge sort of gna burden that you have in you know some other uh, in some other instances for some mm-hmm. of the other uh, companies and, and that can really get out of control and especially then i mean we've we've obviously experienced this in oil and gas right you you have to be sort of right planning for the downturn because it yep. will come yeah and so uh you know i think stunage is, is is just a really sort of has a a uh, very efficient way on on the sort of gna and cost side yep. how to manage the the business and uh, it, i mean it certainly is harder in this uh, higher interest environment but they are nimble they are very efficient on the sales ins- installation side very deliberate about where we are in you know from a geographical mm-hmm. perspective and um um and i think it's you know it's it's a very interesting story yeah. just um you know from a growth perspective organically you know as, as well obviously that that space in general is just a you know prone to consolidation right <clears throat> well maybe we'll get somebody from synergy on to talk more about that business mm-hmm. but you said something that i want to kind of to move on to because you talked about scaling mm-hmm. and so um which sounds fairly consistent across the things that you've done is kind of the practicality mm-hmm. of growing businesses and so you know let's talk about that a little bit because it I assume that as uh, when the SPAC closes that all of these deals that you've looked at, you circle back and, you know, you worked for free for a while uh, for <laughs> a number of, of companies. But I would assume that there are going to be other opportunities in energy evolution mm-hmm. for you. What do you what do you think is the special sauce that that really, you know, kind of differentiates what you want to do for the next 10 mm-hmm. years? um around around this mm-hmm. so i think you know the the um, there are a couple of trends i would say that that we've sort of seen in the you know decarbonization decarbonization energy evolution arena is well number one is you know i always thought sort of inventing something is the hardest thing in the world until i realized you know recently it's actually scaling something mm-hmm. it's probably you know, equally as hard. Uh, and it's just a fundamentally, you know, very different skill set, right? Like it's like, um, you know, in investment banking, it's, it's you know, the people who have like a very strong analyst skill set, it's not necessarily easy to be a managing director and all of a sudden sort of, you know, start selling and understand the strategy and all that. It's a very few people can really uh, effectively sort of, you know, work in different areas. Or you have science person and you have social, you know, sciences person too very few people who are like really good at two very distinct uh, arenas mm-hmm. and so the same way is essentially you know starting versus growing right very few people can can actually sort of take the business to the to the next level and so i, I feel very passionate about the fact that you know coming from <clears throat> sort of industry like oil and gas that's very capital heavy mm-hmm. that's very volatile that's very entrepreneurial but it's also very sort of uh, technologically uh, sophisticated, right? Um, that is almost the perfect ing- ingredients, not almost, that I, I do believe that is the perfect ingredients to actually take to companies in sort of the decarbonization energy evolution arena and help them scale. I think what's what's <clears throat> very, um, the, the, the interesting observation we've seen is that, you know, energy evolution is not at the, sort of the initial stage you are at the stage where you have to put some serious capital mm-hmm. whether it's building you know a gigafactory whether it's you know building a hydrogen facility 
um, you know, whether it's, you know, um, expanding, you know, uh, with, with your, I don't know, truck fleet or electrifying. I mean, mm-hmm. all that stuff is super capital intensive. Yep. And so that's really the, the, you know, where we come from. That's the bread and butter. What that entails is you have to think about your commercial contracts. You have to think about, you know, how you structure them because if you structure them, you know, uh, in uh, one way, you, you're going to be a, you know, a, a very substantially different company than if you kind of structure them in another way, right? Short-term contract or long-term contract, take or pay, or, you know, a, a monthly sort of, you know, renewals. That that could be a uh, sort of a, you know, a, a decision that's going to fundamentally change the company forever. Uh-huh. And you are at the point when you are right now striking those contracts with very big players. Uh-huh. So you're setting the precedent, right? Uh, and you are setting your company in a certain path. So I, I feel very sort of strong about the ways that, that you know, uh, sort of helping companies to, to kind of mm-hmm. negotiate this and, or think about the impact that a right. contract will have on the company. And the second piece is, again, you're dealing with some very large commercial counterparties. That take, That's a very different level Take of some savvy. approach. Yep. And so, you know, how do you build your commercial people around it? How do you think about you know, the commercial contract impact on your capital structure, right? Mm-hmm. The third thing is capital structure, right? Because there are many different sort of risk return parameters in kind of different pockets of the companies. Um, you know, we, we saw it sort of in the MLP arena, right? Like you're developing an asset, you know, at, 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 you know at, with certain risk return and, and different buckets of investors. And then you are kind of you know, uh, having yielding vehicles that, you know, once the assets are operating that you can drop them into. And so you know, a lot of these are how do you optimally structure your uh, capital structure and uh-huh. your, your balance sheet? Um, you know, and then the third thing, obviously, it's uh, how... I think we're on four. So four things, sorry. Yeah. So four <laughs> the, the second, third <laughs> thing. Say, don't ever say right? numbers. I the always second, say this to myself. Don't ever say <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. I'll, I'll keep you on track. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the fourth thing is really, um, you know, just M&A. There's uh-huh. going to be a ton of consolidation that is a very, you know, it's not easy to sort of... Uh, uh, integrate companies. It's it's easy for you know sort of I don't, you know bankers to come in and investors to sort of come in and it makes all you know all the sense in the world the spreadsheet. But then at the end of the day, you may not be able to make it work in reality. Mm-hmm. And so the M and A integration is a you know it's yeah. a big piece of that equation. I think obviously, I mean as we're looking in the space, you shouldn't have you know ten companies in you know um, whatever I don't want to name One industries. One small but subsector. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, even solar, right? Yeah. Like you shouldn't have so many solar players. Mm-hmm. I mean that is a just a wide arena for uh, consolidation. Yeah. So all of that is working closely with companies to sort of enable them to grow to the next level. It, yeah. it, it's now, it's sort of no longer this, I, I fundamentally believe that, you know, the, the really important piece in sort of solving the scaling of decarb or energy evolution is active role mm-hmm. with companies. <clears throat> so you're sitting in Pentex telling the CEO you want to be a CEO. <laughs> Fast forward, what I hear you saying is I hear you saying helping companies. Uh-huh. And so for you, it sounds like the I want to be the CEO is sort of merging into the I want to help build companies mm-hmm. and not one company, but mm-hmm. maybe many companies. And so it sounds like, you know, the stay tuned factor for you is 
you know, you may be involved in three or four of these mm -hmm. companies that need to be scaled. Uh, we'll see if you'll do it for free. Um, no longer for free. No, <laughs> no, no longer for free. And and do you think, Andreka, is the there's a lot of capital out there. Mm -hmm. um, is is there capital for what you're talking about? Or I mean, I hear a lot mm -hmm. of venture capital. I hear a lot of mm -hmm. infrastructure. Mm -hmm. There's a big gap between that. Mm -hmm. it sounds like you're kind of trying to fill that gap. That, that that's right, Dan. I mean, uh, it, it's. Um, you know, again, the, the VC world is obviously unbelievably important world, but that's not necessarily sort of the the um, you know proactive sort of approach in a capital-heavy industry, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then you have a, a lot of obviously the the big players, both infrastructure as well as private equity, um, that that really want to participate in the space, um, right? Sort of um, having a more diverse uh, pocket of uh, energy and infrastructure capital. <clears throat> Um, but there are very few players sort of in that, what I would call a, you know, 22, maybe $150 million equity tickets. And really sort of the 5,200 million is, is very, very few players. And I feel that's, that's the kind of capital that's really necessary to sort of get engaged where you can have active roles with the companies and you can, you can truly, you know, proactively help them being built into sophisticated long-term sustainable businesses that can be either taken public at the right time by a SPAG or IPO uh -huh. um, or can be acquired by a large strategic or a large uh, financial player, uh -huh. right? Um, and so there's this just really starved area of companies that are just at the cusp of, you know, whether they just signed a, a commercial contract or are about to sign a big commercial contract or... You know, they just need additional, you know, 20 million of GNA for the next couple of years to, to really refine their product or build a facility, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say kind of, you know, post pilot, um, you know, real commercialization style um, stories. I can't wait to see how many business cards you have over the next three or four, <laughs> three or four years. Um, but the important thing then is I think, you know, in, in this equation, is it's the realization from both sides, right? That I need help as a company to go to the next level. Uh -huh. right? I, I need that extra toolkit. Um, I want to have, um, you know, in, investors and partners involved who are gonna help me because that this is fundamentally very different. So it's, um, you know, it's sort of the coachability uh, approach that I see, you know, with my sons in, in ice hockey. Uh -huh. um, I think that's a very important component um, in, in being able to sort of strike the right partnerships. Yeah. <clears throat> we see you've been an oil and gas person. Mm -hmm. You're now an energy evolution person. <laughs> um, do you think the oil and gas companies are going to be able to do the same thing? Can they, are they going to be successful in this, you know, getting involved in decarbonization? I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I think oil and gas and one of the reasons why I, I really enjoy being in oil and gas was, um, it's, you know, the, the folks involved in the space, whether they are big or small, uh, are fundamentally very, you know, open-minded and entrepreneurial mostly, uh -huh. uh, and, and also not afraid of change. Um, and that's very unique, I feel, for you know, from 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 many other industries. I think all other industries, honestly. 
and so I you already see you know the the activity in the space with uh, you know uh, Chevron with BP with Shell with Exxon all of the you know big uh, uh, um, uh, you know super majors yeah uh, you do see the activity you know well, they're active do you think they're gonna be successful well I think that those are the folks that truly have been able to scale uh -huh. you know globally across different products you know I, I often um, often uh, uh, say to people you know oil and gas is highly technologically sophisticated I mean uh -huh. every single well that you are drilling is, is, is sort of you know pushing the limits and, and every single well is different it's like your kids right like it's it's it, they're all very different so you, you'll have to approach it with a different level of, you know, uh, sophistication, technology, operating approach, et cetera. And so um, I, I, I do feel very strongly that that's, um, that, that industry, you know, oil and gas, is going to be in, in, critical in actually enabling the growth in decarbonization. They've built very complicated facilities before, which is what we are going to be doing now. You know, they've drilled deep. I mean, that's that's one of the pieces also that's, that's I think it's an incredibly piece of the equation is, um, mineralist exploration, right, around the world. I mean, there's enough in the ground, um, but uh, how, how do we get it out in a, in a cost-effective manner? Because that is the key to all of this equation, you uh -huh. know, to all of electrification, is you can be recycling on one side, and, you know, you can be producing more efficiently, and you can have more advanced technologies, but at, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to be replacing oil and gas for, uh, you know, minerals, right? Uh -huh. So. I think that is a very important uh, uh, space that that I actually really you know like, and I think uh, that's where you know sort of the oil and gas folks can add a, a tremendous amount of value. Mm -hmm. um, and so yes, I, I do think the combination of um, you know they, I mean, oil and gas have, has done it in in you know pretty changing and you know challenging situations. And by the way, safely, you know, safety is very important. Right. Um, I mean, you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of people that that are at risk of their lives. Right. You can't just uh, get a guy from the, from the street and and say, hey, Turn now loose. go build yeah. a hydrogen facility. I mm -hmm. mean, th th these are very dangerous situations. Right. Yeah. So um, I do think that that is the industry that or the, the folks from this industry, from oil and gas, are going to be key to actually solving, ironically, decarbonization. <clears throat> and it's just moving different product. It's just building different facility. Right, retooling a little bit, and so, um, anyways, I, I feel very that that's something I've, I've I've I have been feeling very strongly about, and I've been actually very vocal about for the past three years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what advice would you give to young people thinking about this industry, or what advice would you give to young people in general? You've been thinking a lot about these ten to twenty year olds now. Yeah. Now <laughs> yes. think about the twenty to thirty year olds and. What's, what do they need to be doing mm. to be successful? You know, I think that a, a lot of the times, and I, you know, I actually really enjoy, uh, you know, with the abundance of the spare time I have, but I, I really uh, try to sort of be helpful to, you know, younger generations, et cetera. But a lot of the times people come uh, and they say, well, I, you know, I come from whatever, oil and gas or industrials or, you know, power or whatever, and, um, I just think it's gonna be just so hard to transition. And they ask me, how did you transition? You know, what was the secret sauce like this? And, um, and the way that I personally looked at that space, Dan, um, I looked at what I've learned, 
both from a sort of technical perspective as well as sort of just, you know, a passage of career, right, mm-hmm. experience. And I thought, gosh, like I, I really do have so much to add to decarbonization. So I basically looked at what is the toolkit that I really think is going to be helpful in the sector. And I realized, gosh, there's so much more that I can add. And let me highlight this, you know, to the companies. And that was a part of the SPAC process, by the way. One of the things that we did is, you know, we can be actually helpful. It's uh-huh. not just a vehicle for going public. And so um, if you look at your resume and if you look at your experience, um, open your mind to what you have in common and what you actually have, you know, very relevant add to the table to a different industry versus saying, oh, I come from, you know, a, a certain industry and, and sort of getting paralyzed and intimidated. I mean, literally every conversation I start with a, with a company, I say, you know, I come from oil and gas and here's what I've done. And some things worked out, you know, most of them worked out. Some of them did not. Right. I mean, um, and it's across an ex- extremely volatile time period that I've been involved in uh-huh. energy. So, um, so we actually see a ton of pull from companies like, you know, we want you to be involved. We, we, we really need the sort of input that, that you have, uh, you guys have to provide in the space. Yeah. Um, so don't be afraid. Don't be defensive. You know, um, this, this is who I am and this is what I have to, to add to the table. And, and the folks that, you know, may not resonate with them, then, you know, they, th- that's fine, right? Um, they're not the ones. They're not the ones. Yeah. But don't be defensive and don't be afraid. And, and honestly, Dan, and I've done this a few times in my life, you've got to put in some free work too, right? Yep. Like if you want to get involved in a different industry or whatever, different geographical area or different product, um, I mean, I actually do like, you know, Elon Musk says you don't need college. I mean, I won't go that far. <laughs> I do have three kids. That's yes. not an option yes. in our household. But um, but there is so much available out there to you that you don't need a fancy degree and you don't need, you know, a decade of experience to sort of transition into a new arena. But it takes some free work, too. You know, it's like my first three internships were, were working for free and that's you know what led me to other things mm-hmm. I, I actually do think that's a very important component yeah so as as i was getting ready for our discussion i came across a, an example of i wouldn't say working for free but being <laughs> deliberate um tell tell our tell our listeners a little bit about how you know you you said you went to your last two years of high school in Switzerland. Tell us about how you got there, because might be because to me it's very telling. You're you're in the Czech Republic. You want to do something different. There's a pretty big gap from that to Harvard as your backup <laughs> college. So, tell us about how you got into your high school. Well, um, so I come from a very very small village in the you know czech countryside i actually i know it's quite unbelievable but um you know until i was about 15 i was super introverted Mm, Um, that is unbelievable that is yes i i but that's another testament like you can change do what you gotta do right yes and again if you are deliberate about it like you you can do it but um you know i always went sort of the the borders opened after the you know fall of communism you know remember we we were not able to go and travel in the west right so the austrian border is closer than the polish border and we could never 
you know, cross the, the Austrian border. We, it, never, right? We, could, we were not able to leave to the Western world. So, you know, all of a sudden sort of the borders open and, um, and I wanted to, you know, study uh, uh, in, in the West. So <clears throat> the, uh, the way I got into my uh, boarding school is I, I, there were only two things I knew about the school. I learned about it by coincidence, but one was they speak English there and the other is that it's in the Swiss Alps. And so I realized I first have to learn English. So that's how I came to the U.S. And, and literally this was my actually first, I would say, fundraising experience then when I was 14. I would, I got on a bike and I was biking from one small, very small businessman. And we were talking like food truck guys, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to another asking uh, for sponsorship, which here, you know, people are, you know, very used to charitable donations. Here in the U.S. Here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Czech Republic, like, not so much. Was, a very new product i was like i was like goldman sachs <laughs> like making up you know creating a new product to to sell to people so um so let, this this probably was a 10-month exercise I was biking before school every day you know from 6 a.m to 7 30 a.m and after school asking for sponsorship and raised the six thousand dollars actually and then went to the u.s um like i said lived with a family in new hampshire fabulous experience etc learned english came back and when i came back um I uh, applied to the Swiss boarding school. It's called Egelon College, um, uh, which is a you know a, a, a very expensive school, very mm -hmm. expensive. Um, but I, I had no sort of sense of like right. cost at that yeah, time. Yeah, you're 15. Yeah, I was 16, and so I, um, I basically sent a note to the headmaster of the school, this exclusive Swiss British boarding school, and I asked him for a space at uh, for a place at Eglon, and he responded that um, you know uh, they they don't give scholarships. I have to sort of apply. There was a, a specific um, uh, charitable foundation that was giving uh, you know scholarships to East European students at that time. One of the criteria of uh, that uh, scholarship was um, that it was only for students who did not spend extensive period of time in English-speaking country. So I went to the U.S. To learn English, so I can go to this boarding school, and now that excluded me from the. Uh, then you can't, yeah, can't get there. Uh, and of course, there was an option, you know, to say, no, I didn't. Um, but that's but the, you told the, the wrong truth. option. So yeah. I said the truth, and uh, I was rejected for the scholarship. And so, I then proceeded to send um, handwritten letters. I actually do have copies of these, Dan. So if I ever mm. write a book, like I will publish those because they were just incredibly hilarious you know i mean the 16 year old wanting to go to the school so every probably week or two weeks i don't remember now but i was writing a handwritten letter to the headmaster and the head of admissions that i'm coming to school i want to come to school and you know what can i do i you know i offered like i'm gonna be you know cleaning the toilets i'm gonna <laughs> be you know helping babysit this, this the kids of the staff etc just this wild ideas and um eight months later this didn't work uh, you know, they kind of politely would always answer to me, you know, thank you very much in receipt of your note and, you know, best best wishes for your life. Right. Good um, luck. <laughs> so four days before the start of the school year, I decided, well, uh, this obviously is not working. So I got to change the strategy a little bit. Uh, I have to call this guy, right? The headmaster of this uh, super exclusive boarding school. So I called him and uh, I told him he has two choices. One is I'm getting on the bus one-way ticket to Switzerland. Uh, I can sleep in front of the dorms or inside the dorms, but I will be there in four days. And so literally, as I was literally getting on the bus, um, he called me and he said that I have a, a place at Elon. 
Um, and so that was, you know, it was, I mean, this was years. I and mean, we're talking two years of, you know, different strategic and tactical exercise. And most importantly, I was just not going to give up. And what's important, I think, in this, this equation, Dan, is I was willing to take the risk. I did have a one-way bus ticket. And I was ready to sleep in front of the dorms. Like you've got to be ready to take the risk. And that's one of the things that I, you know, I, I feel are really important in life, right? Like you've got to be persistent, but you have to be willing to take the leap. And, and that's what I'm trying to teach my kids, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can't settle. You can't say this is impossible. You know, it's just hard. Life is hard and you're going to just work at it and never give up. And you've got to be willing to just take risks. Yeah. I really hope that our <laughs> listeners get to this story, right? <laughs> because it's a great story. It gave me goosebumps hearing about it. And I, I knew it was a cool story when I read it. It's an even cooler story to hear it. So thank you for sharing. Um, never give up is a really good, a really good uh, motto. Um, shall we do our lightning round? Let's do it. Okay. So the rules are you don't get to explain. You just have to, it's a yes or a no or a, so... Here we go. Um, east coast or west coast? East. Wind or solar? Solar. Donuts or kolaches? Kolaches. <laughs> uh, Beyonce or Taylor Swift? Beyonce. I know a lot of people will be disappointed. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> Do you think the world hits net zero by 2050? No. Cash or crypto? Cash. Amazon Prime or Netflix? Amazon Prime. Okay. For the rest of the year, so only three more months now, do, uh, do you think the S&P goes higher or lower? Um, we'll stay right around where it is. Okay, flat. Ford Lightning or Ford F-150? Lightning. My, my kids would not allow me to mm. give it <laughs> High school play or Broadway play? Broadway. Depending if my kids are in the high school play, then. Uh, yeah, yeah, can't explain. Yeah. Okay. Broadway. 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 Broadway was the answer. CCUS or hydrogen? Hydrogen. Czech Republic or Switzerland? Czech Republic. Does the Ukraine conflict continue through June of 2024? Yes. Another nine months. Yes. Yes. Work for office or work from home? Home. And do you think we'll have another IRA bill? in the next three years here in the US? No. Okay. Sorry, I gotta turn my page. Um, to the very last and most important question, since you're a Houston, Texas person now, will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? I have to say yes. <sighs> I knew Andreka was an incredible <laughs> guest and she just confirmed it with the answer to the last question. Andreka, thank you so much. So remind us again how we uh, go see about Sgen. It's mm -hmm. tell us the website address again. Uh, Sgen-spac.com. Fabulous. Well, and I look forward to see what comes next. We'll have you back and and <laughs> see where the world has taken us. Andreka, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here.